You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that examines the big choices shaping our world today. Who makes them? Who is affected by them? I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. We recently reviewed 2022's biggest decisions with friends of our podcast from The Economist, Bloomberg and Semaphore. You can find that on our recent shows wherever you found us here. But today, my co-host and partner in pod, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of MI6, he and I are looking at 2023, where the chess pieces have moved and what Sir Richard is going to be looking for in the months ahead. Richard, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Julia, to you as well. And I hope it might be a better one. Yes, yes. 2022, I remember going in thinking, oh, we're coming out two years out of the pandemic. He's hoping we have a, a bit more of a quieter, less dramatic year. And then we found ourselves in the middle of a war in Europe and things got madder still. I guess most of us didn't see specifically the war coming. I remember the two of us were in concert about that. We both felt quite strongly that no way Putin would be stupid enough to actually launch a ground invasion of Ukraine. And one of us, uh, certainly, it was probably me, said that if Putin does actually go ahead with this, I'll eat my hat. So uh, that just goes to show that uh, (laughs) you never know what can happen in this crazy world of ours. But uh, certainly a lot of curveballs happened last year. And now we find ourselves looking ahead to 2023. And we are looking at a world that was shaped by the pandemic, of course, the two years before that. And so we're beginning 2023 in a world that is likely going to be shaped by Putin's war in Ukraine. So I just wanted to get started with this conversation, looking at some of the the key moving pieces, uh, which are likely to be in play for 2023 and, and potentially beyond. And I first of all want to start with, of course, the war in Ukraine and how that is likely to to shape up in the months to come and what kind of impact it will continue to have on the world's political alliances uh, and, of course, the global economy. And we saw President Zelensky making this incredibly important trip out last year, his, his first foreign trip since the war began uh, in February 2022. It was a really historic trip, his trip to Washington, to the United States. And it was planned and organized in total secret. And it was only announced publicly a few hours before he went to address the US Congress. There was that incredibly powerful image of Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi unfurling the Ukrainian flag that was signed by Ukrainian soldiers. They did that in the Capitol as Zelensky made his address. Uh, He tried to make it very bipartisan. He frequently addressed both parties in his speech. The Americans in all states. That was obviously so important for Zelensky and for Ukraine because the US has been his most important ally in the war. Uh, I believe the Americans have committed some $50 billion of financial, humanitarian and security assistance so far, which is way more than any other country. And then there was, of course, the donation of a Patriot system of advanced defense missiles to Ukraine, which Zelensky welcomed, but he candidly asked for more, uh, which is quite funny because you saw Biden laughing as Zelensky said, sorry, but we're in a a war. Can we have some more Patriot missiles? Um, 
You know, last year we spoke to quite a few experts on Ukraine and Russia about how the war was going, and particularly we're at a really important crossroads uh, on the battlefield. We've got Ukraine's very difficult and harsh winter conditions, and then of course there's the will of European nations to bear pain in order to support Ukraine and potentially prolong the war, and perhaps most crucially, the American appetite to fund it militarily. So what do you think we're likely to see in the months ahead? And and how did you find Zelensky's trip to the US, particularly given the questions over that bipartisan support? Zelensky's trip, of course, is fundamentally important to Ukraine, because Ukraine, for its survival, but for any chance of military victory is totally, I think, dependent on the support it gets from the United States. So you can see that trip as being completely seminal. And a colleague of mine talking about it drew an interesting parallel between uh, Churchill's address uh, to the United States Congress, which I think was in 1941, and Zelensky's at this point in time. Um, Okay, that's making a very dramatic comparison, but I think it underlines the fact that Ukraine absolutely needs that alliance with the United States to survive. And I think we're at a difficult point in the war, really, because Putin is clearly now playing for time. The longer the war goes on, the longer that he can, as it were, push the date of continuation out, the better the chances are for Russia in that the West's alliance could be fractured and could break apart over time because there will be different views about fighting the war and fighting directly in support of Ukraine or giving Ukraine the military support to sustain it over time. So there's no question that I think Putin now is playing for the long term because his other options militarily on the ground look really poor. Uh, One's almost heading for a frozen conflict, a line which doesn't seem to be moving a great deal. The losses are reported to be huge. And of course, Ukrainians on their side haven't really had a breakthrough. But we'll have to see what happens over the coming weeks. I feel neither optimistic or pessimistic at this point in time. The Ukrainians are certainly holding their own, but Putin's objective of playing for the long term seems at the moment to be relatively successful. We spend a lot of time, uh, not just you and I on this podcast, but but media and, and Russia-Ukraine watchers in general, analysing what was happening a lot on the battlefield in Ukraine. And I wonder if this year, 2023, we're going to start to perhaps see more movement within Russia. And we've seen the Ukrainians recently making good use of the HIMARS system that they've gotten from the Americans. And there was this huge loss of life on the Russian side with this uh, HIMARS attack on a military compound. And we don't know how many Russian soldiers died. Kiev says as many as 500 Russian soldiers have died. The Russians admitted that they certainly lost uh, 100 soldiers, their their biggest single casualty since the war began. But what I thought was interesting was there is now a lot of finger pointing and, and, and blame 
happening within Russia. And you have these very, uh, these these war bloggers, these very influential military commentators within Russia who are really laying it on thick with Putin when it comes to his strategy. There's been open sort of criticism of how Putin has conducted this war. Uh, recently, we've had those kinds of voices criticizing those soldiers involved in that Ukrainian strike for possibly giving away their location on social media. But there was this wife of, of a Russian soldier who said that the local population were very hostile to those Russians in, in this town of Makivka, which is on, on occupied territory. Uh, and she said that she thinks the Ukrainian locals were the ones who gave away their position to Kiev. And of course, this is the local Ukrainian population that we're always hearing from Vladimir Putin uh, is, is very pro-Russian, apparently. Well, it just shows the Russians are still militarily very incompetent uh, and that the conduct of this war at the operational level is going really, really badly. They must be vulnerable to intelligence leakage from the local Ukrainian population, even if the majority are pro-Russian, are individuals who are not. And I think the Ukrainians have already shown us that they have the ability to strike behind Russian lines and even to strike inside Russia. So I don't think we should be surprised because I think that the Ukrainians are are becoming really much better equipped and much better directed to make these real uh, tactical successes which aggregated over time will turn into a strategic success so i mean it's really going badly for putin i think the other thing i was going to say in in some respects i think one has in moscow now the preconditions and and i stress they they are preconditions for some sort of political uh, change over time i mean there's no question that Putin now is in a disastrous situation. It's difficult to predict how long this will go on for, but I think he's in a very um, fragile position with not much room for manoeuvre. And the only way out of it is, is military success. And that doesn't look likely in the current time frame. I totally agree with you on you know, the idea that Putin is fragile. He's also physically fragile increasingly. I mean, he, he sparked even more health rumours uh, following that bizarre, furious, uh, rambling New Year's Eve message on television. A lot of media outlets picked up that he looked really tired uh, as he made uh, that address. He spoke to Russians in each of the country's 11 time zones before midnight and he coughed quite a few times in his speech, which a lot of people noticed. <coughs> <clears throat> and curiously, a few days before that, Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman, he said that President Putin would no longer be communicating with journalists as he did before the pandemic. Um, and and he, he, he blamed actually COVID and, and all the bugs going around for that. He said that Putin's health was a matter of state security and officials wouldn't risk his infection which I think is is very curious. And and then, of course, you know, he, he also took the unusual step of cancelling his annual a large press conference, which is something that he's done every, every single year since 2012. 
Well, I think the evidence strongly suggests that he is not in good health. In fact, it would suggest to me that there's something seriously wrong with him. And you know, if he's being kept away from the public, that also would suggest some sort of compromise in his immune system, so that he'd be very vulnerable to any bugs that he did catch. And of course, that would be a classic case of treatment for some sort of other disease which has compromised his immune system. Look, I'm not a medic, and I really don't understand these things in detail. But I think if you look at him, look at his behavior, look at his comportment, look at the way that he speaks, there's something fundamentally wrong, unquestionably. And that, uh, and, and the people I know who, who are in a position, you know, to comment m- more closely on these things agree with that view. I wonder who you could possibly mean behind that curious infirmant. Tell us who your friends are, Richard. Um, well, I was thinking of one or two people I, I'm still in touch with who I talk to who are well connected with people in Russia. And they're absolutely convinced that there's something fundamentally wrong with him. And that it's possibly uh, an illness which has impaired, impaired his judgment as well. And I think that there's a, and given that the decisions he takes, his behavior is so strange that I think that that's quite a likely explanation of his situation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because those, you know, those really, really long tables, him keeping such an arm's distance away from from others, you know, I suppose they could point towards either him being worried about an infection or indeed him worrying about anyone getting too close to him. And, you know, we're always sort of gleaning any kind of rumours of a possible palace coup. Let me let me ask you to make a prediction. Will will Vladimir Putin be president of the Russian Federation still by the end of 2023? And if you think he's not, who do you think is likely to be a successor? I mean, he's he's not appointed a successor. There there is of course that circle around him, the Siloviki, who possibly would be one of those uh, likely to be someone from from a, a similar KGB background. And the the, ob- the obvious name that springs to mind is Nikolai Patrushev. What would you say? Do you, will he still be president? And if not, who do you think is uh, the clear front runner if there is one? Well, I think it's pretty unlikely that he'll survive the year. And I, you know, I had said that he could be shuffled off in a sanatorium about now. And I still think that we could wake up one morning and find rather strangely that he's not around. But there hasn't been a coup. There has just been someone stepping in and taking his place and without much explanation as to what what's going on. But if that were to happen, it would definitely be one of the Siloviki. And, um, you know, my choice would be uh, Nikolai Patrushev, uh, who's been around for a very long time. I, I mean, he was head of the FSB when I was visiting Moscow. Um, he's a hardliner. Uh, You've met him. Yes, You've I have. You've met him, haven't you, Richard? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago when he was head of the FSB. And um, when we were, from time to time, talking to the Russians about sensitive issues, uh, and we had a different view of how relations with Russia might develop at that stage. And uh, Patrushev is an impressive individual, but he's very, very hard-nosed, very nationalistic. And I think could be a dangerous successor from the West point of view. On the other hand, I I think someone like Patrushev, however extreme as nationalism is, is also rational. And it might well be that a more rational 
leader, even a strongly nationalistic one, would be easier to deal with in searching for a way out of the conflict in Ukraine? I, I, I don't know. But clearly at the moment, neither side is inclined to indicate a willingness to negotiate. What wouldn't I give to be a fly on the wall for a meeting between the head of MI6 and the head of the FSB? I'm pretty sure I've seen that scene in Spooks and Homeland several times. I, how did you find Patrushev? What was he like as a person? Well, I, you know, you're sitting across the table talking. Um, very hard-nosed, rather cold. Well, diff quite difficult to deal with. But this was way back. This was post-9-11, uh, uh, when for a period of time we had a different relationship with Putin's uh, regime before things went awry, which they did over a number of issues. But I won't go into detail now. I think that's as much as I can say at this point in time. I think... Another thing that we're potentially going to see in 2023, which I don't think is going to come as quite a shock, is that China is perhaps going to be in for quite a bumpy ride. Now, that 20th Party Congress for Xi Jinping didn't quite go as planned. And, and yet it was an event that had been sort of years in the planning and, and the making. And there were quite a few things that threw spanners in the works. There were... Uh, those protests that were going on throughout the year, those uh, protests on the Sitong Bridge in, in Beijing hung up saying that the people of China, they want freedom, they don't want dictatorship, we don't want Xi Jinping and some really, uh, some really bold things that we haven't seen in, in China quite a while. And then there was the, the protest that really exploded late last year after that building fire in Xinjiang where people died because they weren't allowed out of that building to flee the fire because it was under lockdown. I mean, Xi has, he's now essentially rode back and started to unwind his COVID policy and loosening some of the lockdowns. He's scrapped the virus tracking app. He's opening China up for travel, but we are seeing quite a worrying rise in cases. But given we saw how vulnerable the Chinese economy was to COVID and everything that followed. Do you think that we are going to see an economically and therefore politically very, very difficult year for Xi Jinping? Well, I think I would rather express it by saying that Xi Jinping faces some huge challenges. Obviously, the primary one is the whole issue of COVID and the failure of his lockdown policy and the uh, impracticability of trying to suppress the virus, which clearly was hiding to nowhere. And I think what's extraordinary is that it was, in fact, a series of street protests which spread, as you correctly explained, from that original fire, which I think caused the Chinese Communist Party leadership to reassess the COVID policy and rather quietly announced various changes that indicated that it was being abandoned. But even in abandoning the policy, they put themselves into a very difficult situation because on the one hand, you had the lockdown. On the other hand, you've got a 
largely unvaccinated population or you've got vaccines which have not been particularly effective in uh, creating uh, immunity. So as they let the break off, they are also faced with the risk of very heavy uh, mortality, particularly amongst the elder generation. So I think Xi's, as it were, confirmation in power as General Secretary of the party, uh, and it looks like almost for life, has started rather badly. The way I think I would see Xi's position is, okay, he is in a very dominant overall position of rulership. No one's challenging him. He's eliminated all of his rivals. But if things start going wrong politically, civically, socially in China, which must be a considerable risk at the moment, his room for manoeuvre uh, is very narrow. The, the distance between him and, as it were, the political cliff edge is pretty short. And the Chinese system famously is very brittle, very inflexible, very poor at coping with crises. I think the surprising thing in terms of recent events is the speed at which the COVID policy was dumped. And you could argue rather extraordinarily that this is the first time the Chinese leadership have, as it were, reacted to pressure from the street, uh, which in a way is pretty unprecedented given their reaction to that sort of pressure usually is lockdown, control, um, repression, imprisonment, so on and so forth. I'm going to change gears slightly and, and ask you about the US because I think it's going to be a pretty interesting year in American politics. Um, it's already got off to a very interesting start. Uh, Kevin McCarthy seems to have gotten himself into a bit of a pickle. Um, the Republicans can't seem to decide who they want to be their speaker. Uh, US politics is never boring for long. Um, but we, but this year, we're, we're not in an election year this year, but we will likely start to see a bit of a ratcheting up of the electoral process. We don't have any primaries until 2024. But I wanted to ask, who do you think is perhaps likely going to be the main contender for the Republicans um, to challenge Joe Biden? I mean, the, the question of who will run for the Democrats next year, I think is still an open question. But well, I think Trump will continue to be the great disruptor, but it looks to me as though Trump politically has peaked. Uh, the performance of his favoured candidates in the midterms was generally disastrous, and many of them uh, lost their opportunity uh, to be elected and were significantly defeated. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we're well aware that Trump continues to have a following on the extreme right of the Republican Party. But for my book, I, I think that the likely candidate will be DeSantis, because you're never going to win an election without appealing to the floating voter. And I think the floating voter or the, the, the voter that sits between the Republicans and the Democrats is not going to incline to support Trump any longer. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty 
outlandish um, guess, but I, 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 I think one sees the preconditions uh, for, I wouldn't say a sea change in US politics, but a shift away from the situation as it's been so heavily dominated by the Trump factor. But I mean, the other problem, of course, is that Biden has done surprisingly well politically uh, during the midterms and, and in the aftermath. Um, he's conducted himself well on Ukraine, but given his overall age and condition, it's very hard to see him being, again, the Democratic candidate. So what's going to happen on the Republican, uh, sorry, on the Democratic side of the equation? It's difficult to predict, and I, I, I'm not well enough informed of the detail of US politics to know if there's anybody who's likely to emerge as a, as a replacement for Biden. Yeah, I mean, I do I do think those midterm elections last year were, were so, so interesting because we saw Biden polling so badly uh, ahead of those elections. And yet we saw him doing so much better than we all expected. But a lot of people say that's because the elections were actually not a referendum on the incumbent administration as they tend to be, but rather a referendum on the previous one. And I think it's because so much of what we saw on the campaign trail were throwbacks to 2020 and a bunch of of, of Trump-favoured candidates who were still waffling on about the 2020 election without offering a view for America in the future, which interestingly was exactly what Ron DeSantis did. And he tended, he seemed to reap the benefits from that. So I do think it's interesting that we have a sort of question over who is going to be the future of both the Republican and the Democrat parties, even if it's widely expected that Joe Biden is going to run. But do you feel like the US is going to continue to be the global leader um, in terms of international leadership? Or do you think a lot of this political infighting and and what we're seeing in Congress at the moment is going to make it harder for the US? It's going to distract it domestically from being the global grown-up um, that we have all for decades been, been used to? I don't see that being... Well, I don't see US position as the global super really being seriously prejudiced. I, I think it, there was a brief crisis of confidence after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which did make the Americans look dreadfully incompetent. But I think one can understand why the American administration wanted out. And, and, and it was a disastrous move. And it, it looked awful internationally. And it was bad for America's reputation. But I think I argued at the time that it delivered a significant dent. It didn't deliver significant structural damage, and I don't think it did. And I think the, the indications are that America's, to an extent, thanks to what's happened in Ukraine, refound its confidence and refound its role as, let's say, the protector of, of Western values and Western interests. And it's quite extraordinary the way that America has rallied to Ukraine's support and has done so very successfully and looks as though it will continue to do so. I think these rumours about Republican concerns about the extent of the finance going to Ukraine, the lack of audit, those sorts of issues 
are actually marginal and, and at the moment not important. And I don't think they really represent what the majority of the Republican Party think, because the Republicans are generally speaking hawks in foreign policy. I don't see them, as it were, further compromising themselves uh, in terms of the view of the American voter by, by being equivocal now in relation to supporting Zelensky. I think Zelensky is in a pretty strong position as far as US support goes. What I would like to see you know, is, is a more consistent approach from Europe. I think the UK has, has, has stood up to the block and so has countries like Poland and the Baltic republics have been fantastic uh, and really the former um, countries of the Soviet Empire have all behaved creditably. The, the, the two that have been equivocal and the remain equivocal, of course, are Germany and France. What are your predictions for 2023? What are the biggest priorities for your country? What are the biggest concerns facing you wherever you are listening to us from? Please get in touch. You can tweet us at One Decision Pod. We're also on Instagram at One Decision Podcast. From me and Sir Richard Dearlove, it's been so wonderful to have a growing listenership around the world. I really hope you've been enjoying these conversations as much as we have enjoyed recording them. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.